me every time. Wow. Miss Laura, you got your hands full this morning, sister. <laughs> Thank the Lord for you. Appreciate that. Romans chapter 13, in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes to believers. Who's he writing to? Believers. believers. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us then cast off darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You know, in this life, Christians are targets. In our morning prayer, Brother Chad said, the church is under attack. And it won't take you long watching the news to understand that that's the truth. We are targets for unseen rulers of darkness and for spiritual hosts of wickedness. In fact, friend, you are in an all-out war. And if you're going to win this battle, if you're going to make a dent in this war against Satan, against temptation, and against the wickedness that exists in this world, then you better equip yourself with protection to defend yourself and also with weapons so that you can attack back at your enemy. The only problem is that I've seen is that as we've studied the spiritual armor of God, all that we have seen is defensive gear. All we've seen so far is just defense, defensive weapons, defensive protection. Think about it. We've seen the belt of truth. The belt of truth is the truth of God's word that protects against attacks on your mind. It is the truth of God's son that protects against attacks on your heart. It is the truth of God's spirit that protects against attacks against your will. The belt of truth is very important indeed. But we also studied the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness protects us against Satan's most effective fiery dart, guilt. You see, Satan may accuse you. We may accuse ourselves. Other people may accuse you. Even the circumstances you find yourself in may accuse you. But here's what the Bible says. For the believer, our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has provided a garment of righteousness that we are to wear as we stand before the Father. No one can accuse you, friend, because you have the garment of righteousness. Then we talked about the shoes of the gospel. Very important shoes indeed. Those shoes provide us with stability to stand firm on our foundation, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the foundation that we have as believers. But he, we also are provided with mobility. Mobility to, to use all the methods at our disposal to get this good news out to others. That's important. But we also find that we have countless opportunity with these shoes that when we are ready, when we're ready, God will use us. When we are finally ready to swing the bat, God will provide us with opportunity. The sad state of affairs is, is that there's too many believers that are just not ready yet. 
and so the opportunities don't come. We also were reminded that we are blessed with the shield of faith. The shield of faith reminds us that we must make use of. You see, all these things have already been given us. But we must make use of daily practical faith to honor God in all that we do. It's important, friends, that we use daily faith that's rooted in fact, not feeling. It's important that we know that daily faith, daily practical faith, does not depend on probability. It's important that we are reminded that daily practical faith does not based on appearances. It's important that we take up that shield of faith every day. The last piece that we studied was the helmet of salvation. To truly live as a Christian, we got to start thinking like a Christian. If you want to live as a believer, then you got to start thinking like a believer. We must utilize the helmet of salvation that protects us from a divided mind, from a deceived mind, and from a discouraged mind. So after my study on all of that, I said, well, when do I get to attack? When do I get a weapon with which I can fight back? When do I get an offensive weapon? Today's your day, if you're thinking like me. Because today we're going to be reminded of what God provides every believer who is ready to fight back. And it's interesting that of all the armor of God... You only get one offensive weapon. And the reason you only get one offensive weapon is because that's the only offensive weapon you need. So let's read about that because people find the word of God very offensive, don't they? Many people are offended at the word of God. So let's read about it in Ephesians chapter 6. Going back to verse 10. The word of God says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How do I do that? Well, I put on the whole armor of God that I may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, we fight against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all you can to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench those fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always. How often? Always. With all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Let me pray for you. Father God, we need help. And I'm thankful that you have provided just the armor that we need. Lord, I pray as we learn about this offensive weapon that we would take it to heart and that we would be willing to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and at least put up a fight. 
That's my prayer for my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The apostle writes, for the word of God is living. It's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, even piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the spiritual sword of the word of God is different than any material sword that man knows how to use. The spiritual sword is far different. While a material sword will get dull after it's used, the spiritual sword, the word of God, remains sharp and remains powerful. This material sword, it must be handled with physical power. But the spiritual sword of the spirit has life and power already in it. All we must simply do is this. We must make use of it. That's the problem with many believers. They say, why am I under such attack? Well, could it be that you're not fighting back? Is it possible that you're not even picking up the sword of the spirit, that you're not even fighting back with the word of God? Friend, that is the most of our problems. But to help us understand about this spiritual sword of the spirit, we got to go back where we first began. You may remember in our Let's Get Ready to Rumble series in Matthew chapter 4, we learned that Jesus used his sword. He used the spiritual sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And when Jesus met and defeated Satan in the wilderness, what did he say? It is written. He said, according to my Father's word, according to the word of God, this and that. See, he would quote some Old Testament promises. He'd quote some Old Testament truths that applied to his particular temptation. You know, that story in Matthew chapter 4 is probably the best illustration that we could ever consider to help you understand the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, the first thing we read is this, that Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. He was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Mark chapter 1 uses a little bit stronger language to tell us what happened. In Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. As I wondered, why in the world would the Father lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Why, furthermore, would he drive him into the wilderness to be tempted? Why would he arrange this temptation. What is the deal? Why would God arrange Jesus to go through such horrible, horrible temptations? Well, I want to tell you real briefly why I believe that God wanted Jesus to endure these temptations. First and foremost, he wanted to prepare Jesus to become all that you and I needed him to be. In Hebrews chapter 2, the word of God says, because he himself, because Jesus himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. What does that mean? 
That means that Jesus has been there where you are. He's been and been exposed to the temptations that you've been tempted to, but he didn't fall for the temptation. It's important for us to know that Jesus has been there and not done that. Amen? He's been there and not done that. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. How many times have you felt weak in your life? Weak to temptation. Amen? At some juncture in your life, you're going to feel weak to some kind of temptation in your life. But he goes on to say, But Jesus was in all points tempted, just as we are, yet was without sin. That means he endured every temptation you have or will endure, but he never fell for it. He never, in, never had to sin in order to be exposed to that temptation. Jesus has compassion on you. Jesus understands what you're going through. He understands how you're tempted in every way. He's been there. He's not done that. And he knows exactly how and how it feels to be tempted. Jesus knows all about your struggles. He knows what you're going through. But here's another reason that I believe that God the Father arranged all this temptation for Jesus. He wanted to expose Satan's methods. It's important for us to know that the devil lurks in darkness. He's waiting to spring out and catch you unaware. He's waiting to give you a surprise attack. The devil does not want you knowing what his tactics are. The devil does not want you knowing what his methods are. But Jesus flushed him out. Jesus flushed those methods and tactics out and reveals them to us in the word of God so that we are not ignorant of his devices. Man, we can thank Jesus for that, that we know what Satan's going to do. But here's another thing, another reason why I believe that the Father arranged for this temptation, and that is God wanted to teach you and I how this sword works. He wanted us to know how the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, how it works. Now, what you need to remember is, is that while Jesus is the Son of God, that doesn't mean that his temptations weren't real. They were as real to him as the Son of God, as the Son of God in the flesh, as they are to you. How many of you have been tempted in your life? Raise your hand. Trying to make sure we don't have any real, real righteous people here that have never been tempted, amen? We've all been tempted at some point in our life. So the temptations that Jesus endured were equally as real as the temptations you have endured. Just the same. But he had laid aside his divine powers as the Son of God. And as he faced Satan, he did so as a man. He did so in human flesh. But he had one thing going for him, and it's the same thing you got going for you. He used the sword of the Spirit. When Jesus faced temptation, he used the sword of the Spirit. He used the word of God against his enemy. Friend, he didn't try to use human reasoning like me and you try to do sometimes. He didn't try to use logic like we try to do sometimes. No, instead, he used the very same sword 
that I can use. The very same sword that you can use. So now I want to just expose some of Satan's methods to you. I want to expose his strategies because he's a, he's a wily, a crafty enemy. And we need to know how to fight back. First of all, Satan tempts us to satisfy a right desire in a wrong way. In Matthew chapter 4, in verse 2, we're reminded that when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. He was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus had a real body. He wasn't just some spiritual being. He had a real body. And Jesus got very hungry after 40 days without food. His taste buds drooled at the very thought of eating some food. And here's the thing. Jesus could have satisfied a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way but he chose not to. And so Satan tempted him to use his power, to use his power to produce instant food. It's something that every one of us should be used to. How many times have you uh, pulled into Mickey D's and ordered yourself uh, a value meal? And just that quick, you're chowing down. You're eating food. In this case, Jesus didn't even have to go to McDonald's. Right there on the spot, if he chose to, he could have turned desert stones into an extra large Big Mac meal. But he chose not to. He chose not to. His desire for food was innocent, but it was real. His desire for food was strong. I mean, the need for food is imperative. You got to have it to live. And it's important to know that he had the power whereby he could have secured immediate relief. Why not use it? Why not use that power to pull into the drive-thru and pick you up a meal? Why not turn that desert stone into a value meal? Why not eat? Well, in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus tells us why. He says, and answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, by Big Macs alone, amen, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, there's power in the word. There's power in your sword. If you will use it. There's even power over natural desires. Think of the natural desires you have. You have all manner of natural desires. Think about your sexual desire. That's right. A sexual desire is normal. A sexual desire is natural. But God made them to be with the right species. With the right gender. And within the covenant of marriage. He gave you something natural and wonderful, but he wanted you to use it the right way. Satan attempts to twist, to turn that natural desire into adultery and fornication. 
That's what he tries to do. What about ambition? That's natural. I wish more people had ambition. I wish more people would express this natural desire to work and to improve oneself. But what does Satan do? Satan takes ambition and he twists it and he turns it and he tweaks it and he turns it into covetousness and greed and selfishness. What about sleep and rest? Perfectly natural, perfectly normal. I'm addicted to that, amen? I do it every day, amen? So do you. We all need sleep and rest. But Satan wants you to take it to the extreme. If he can keep you on the couch, then you ain't doing anything else for the Lord. Amen. He wants you to become lazy. He wants you to become slothful where you're not doing anything of any eternal value. What about eating? Who doesn't need food, right? We all need food, but we don't meet that need by stealing it. I've been tempted to go into Brother Harold's garden and get me a couple uh, tomatoes and a couple squashes and some peas. I was hungry, but that would have been fulfilling a real need in a wrong way. Also, see, we eat to live. That's a good thing. We eat to live, but Satan wants you to live to eat. And there's a big, big difference. That's gluttony. Amen? And gluttony doesn't just have to refer to food either. So Jesus used the sword of the Spirit against his struggles. And get this, if you don't hear another word I said today, Jesus used the sword of the Spirit, and so can you. Against all your struggles, against all your challenges, against all your temptations, you can use the very same sword that Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, used in the desert. Whatever you struggle with, there are Bible truths that will apply. Just like Jesus, we can make use of this sword of the Spirit that God's already given us. The problem is, how many of you have got one sitting in the back of your car dashboard? And it stayed there because it was that's where you put it last Sunday. Amen? you got to pick up the sword if you expect to fight back. You've got to consume and utilize this word of God. Otherwise, it will do you no good whatsoever. If you want to avoid satisfying a right desire in a wrong way, then you better use your sword. You better use the word of God. But Satan also tempts us to commit a sin. Get this. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Satan wants to tempt you to commit a sin of presumption. I'm going to tell you what a sin of presumption is, but let's first read about it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. The devil then took Jesus up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle, on the steeple of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The sin of presumption. Here we have it illustrated for us when Satan plucks a quote from Psalm 91 verse 11, 
but he leaves out half of it. Furthermore, he doesn't bring any context into that verse. He just plucks a part of it out of there. Friend, I want to tell you this morning that the child of God has the, protect, the protection of God when he or she is in the will of God. Did you hear that? The child of God has the protection of God when he or she is in the will of God. I cannot be expected to, accept, to have the protection of God if I'm out of the will of God. Do you understand that? Say amen if you do. Okay. See, when we get out of God's will, yes, we can be forgiven. When we're out of the will of God, yes, his grace will pour out forgiveness on us. But God is also entirely just, and because of that justice, he will allow us to suffer the consequences of being outside his will. It's important that we know that. Let me give you an illustration. If I jump out of a third-story window, it's a mistake. Amen? Amen? If in midair, I say, Lord... I've made a mistake. Will he forgive me? Anybody else? Will he forgive me? If I say, Lord, forgive me, I'm on the second floor. Forgive my mistake. Will he forgive me? He will. But who's going to clean up the mess? Amen? It doesn't stop the fall. Jesus was tempted with this sin of presumption. The sin of presumption is purposely putting yourself in the, a situation where God has to rescue you. Intentionally putting yourself in a place where God has got to bail you out. Where he's got to do a miracle in order to bail you out and prevent your consequences. Let me give it to you another way. If you were to pray to God to get you out of debt. Completely out of debt. And he does. Would it then be okay to go right back out and ring up a bunch of new debt? No, it would not be. That is the sin of presumption, friend. You know that he's not going to do that. He who knows to do good but does not do it, to him it is sin. That is exactly right. We need to know that. You know, it's one thing to be deceived into sin like Eve did in the garden. It's a whole other thing entirely to fall into sin headlong and willfully like Adam did in the garden. Let us know that when we sin willfully, you can't just confess it later. How many people have sinned willfully saying to themselves, hey, I'll just get on my knees tomorrow and I'll ask God to forgive me. Friend, that is the sin of presumption. Presuming upon God's grace and forgiveness when you know you got no business doing it. When you know you got no business sinning in that way. When you know it in advance. Friend, that's not faith. That's not faith. That's tempting God. That's putting God to the test. And Jesus said, we ought not do that. Let me tell you something else that Satan tempts us to do. 
And that is that Satan tempts us to take spiritual shortcuts. Let's read in verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship your Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan promised Jesus the whole world. Wasn't that nice of him? What a promise. He promised Jesus the whole world. The only problem is, is that Jesus was already promised the world. Long ago, before he even came to earth, he had already been promised the world. In Psalm chapter 2, just listen to what the Bible says. It says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. He already owned the earth. But here's what Satan was saying. But if I give it to you now, you won't have to wait. If I give you the title deed to the world now, you won't have to wait. You can have all that you want right now if you'll just worship me. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Now what you need to know is this. Jesus was a man. And because he was a man... He had the same temptations and the same struggles with patience that you do. Anybody else here have a struggle with patience like Jesus did? There's three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I see, I see your hands. Amen. If you're honest, everybody struggles with patience. Amen. We all struggle with patience. I want you to know that Jesus did too. This was a real temptation to him too. But Jesus refused to take a spiritual shortcut. He would not do that. Now, this time, Jesus came for the cross, not for the crown. The next time Jesus comes, it's going to be a whole different story. He'll come for the crown, not for a cross. I'm so glad that Jesus had the discipline to wait and do things right. We need to have that same discipline to do things right. You know, even some Christians today, they want the crown just so long it doesn't come with a cross. They want the glory as long as it doesn't come with any suffering. But I need to tell you today that Satan's glory always leads to suffering. But I need to tell you this too. God's suffering always leads to glory. Friend, unlike Joel Osteen, I can't promise you your best life now. Unlike many other preachers that are preaching today, I can't promise you that God's got this wonderful plan for your life. Because if you give your life to Jesus Christ, that may very well mean a life of suffering. But if you pick up your cross daily 
and you follow him, here's something I can promise you. I can promise you that the end result of you following him will be an eternity of glory. On the other hand, if you choose not to turn away from your sin, if you choose not to at least put up a fight, if you choose to live exclusively for self, here's something else I can promise you. I can promise you an eternity of suffering. Whatever you do, don't take a spiritual shortcut. Whatever you do, friend, be reminded that Satan's way always looks easy. But in the end, it ends up being so hard. In Proverbs chapter 13, the Bible says that the way of the unfaithful is hard. Don't follow his way. When you look at God's way, you may shake your head and say, man, that just sounds too difficult. And that sounds too tough to, to live this Christian life. It's too hard to do. But I want to tell you that in the end, it is the easiest way to blessing. So many are like Esau these days. They're willing to give up their birthright for the temporary pleasures of a stinking bowl of stew. They're willing to give up what God has intended for them just to have a little bit of what the world offers. Friend, don't be like Esau. Don't take a shortcut to spiritual blessing. Just instead, learn to follow Christ. Learn to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Using this sword, Jesus was able to maintain loyalty to God the Father. Using the same sword that you have. You have a copy of it before you now. Using that same sword, Jesus was able to endure the cross. The chances of you having to endure a cross are slim and none. Jesus, using this sword, was able to endure suffering. The chances of you having to endure real suffering are slim and none. But he did all that. He took up this sword because he knew that the cross, beyond the cross, was a crown of glory. I want to tell you today, beyond your suffering... If you'll follow the Lord Jesus and pick up your cross and follow him daily, beyond that suffering lies waiting for you an eternity of glory. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible encourages you and encourages me to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, but get this part, but has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. You know, you and I can't just play defense in this battle. 
because it's all out war. You can't just play defense with the belt and the breastplate and the helmet and the shoes and the shield. You've got to take up the sword too. You've got to be willing to put up a fight, church. You're under attack. Chad and I were talking this morning. One of the biggest problems is not our president. It's a real issue. One of the biggest problems is not the lost. That's an issue. One of the biggest problems is, is the people of God are refusing to pick up the sword. What about you? Are you picking up the sword? Are you even fighting back? Or are you just playing the victim? You're not going to win this war. We are not going to win this battle unless we pick up this sword. Unless you use this sword that God provided for you to win, you won't win. If it remains a dust catcher on your shelf, you will lose. If it becomes a faded book on your back dashboard, you will lose. You must take up this sword. Satan happens to find it very offensive when you pick up this sword and cut him down to size with it. The half-brother of the Lord Jesus said, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. in my heart of hearts that if you haven't heard another word I've said today you've come to the realization that if you don't pick up this sword you will lose this war he gave it to the benefit and just the way Jesus was victorious at the conclusion of his battle in the wilderness so you too can be you got to pick it up. And you've got to use it to cut your enemy back down to size. Some of you may be looking at me and saying, Brother Ben, I don't know that it's Jesus character. Furthermore, he's not in my life. If that's the case, I want you to know today that you've got a lot bigger problem than picking up a sword. Because if you don't have Jesus at the of your life, you are pretty much hopeless. Because there is no other way whereby men can be saved except at the name of Jesus. Not only do you have a problem in this life, you got a problem in your eternity. I want to ask you that. With every eye closed, with every